So, Mark. Yes. In the film Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. Are you sure it's not Stallion Spirit of the Cimarron? Or Cimarron Stallion Spirit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Spirit, the Cimarron Stallion. This is not our joke, but it is true that you can rearrange all the words in this title, and it still makes the same amount of sense. It's insane. The only one I found is Spirit, Cimarron of the Stallion. You can even move the smaller words in a lot of those. Like, you can do Spirit of the Cimarron Stallion, or Cimarron Spirit of the Stallion. Yeah. Or Stallion of the Cimarron Spirit. (laughs) That one is pushing it. But it still makes just as much sense. (laughs) It's true. Anyway, in the 2002 film Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, our narrator, Matt Damon, tells us that they say the history of the West was written from the saddle of a horse, but it's never been told from the heart of one. So what I want to know, Mark, is from what animal's heart should stories be told? I mean, I think based off of the past few years, Hollywood has answered this question. It is a dog's purpose. It is a dog's journey. And, and a dog's way home. And a dog's way home to tell us the story. The art of racing hearts. in the rain. <laughs> that one I was trying to fade in and really couldn't. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I've been thinking about this. Like, what animal should be telling us the stories? I think there's something to be said from, like, the worm perspective. Looking at a geologic scale of how the world fits together. That would be an interesting story of reproduction as well. Right, exactly. Just I think that would be worth animating. I think that the animal that is always there, always watching, and could tell an interesting story is the gecko. Okay, sure. In certain parts of the world, no matter where you live, there is a gecko watching you. I lived on the seventh floor of my building and found a gecko in my bathroom one time. When I lived in Florida, we had these tiny lizards all over the place, both in our house and in my classroom. Because we didn't have hallways at my school, we just had covered walkways, and there was a drainage ditch right outside my classroom, and because it was Florida, that was functionally a swamp, and so I had, like, critters coming into my classroom all the time. Yeah, that open hallway plan is really nice in some ways, but in other ways, it also means that sometimes there's a king cobra in your hallways. Yeah. It was also uh, no, really was bad whenever it rained. cobra. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other animals that would tell interesting stories from their hearts. But that is just a very weird concept. What to if we think got of? a movie in four acts where each act is told from the perspective of a different stomach of a cow? I really have no idea how to engage with this idea. <laughs> I feel like the and stomach. The second act is the first act again, but a little muddier. I don't know what the difference between the stomachs is. Isn't one just like a holding sack for cud? Yeah, so that's where they put all the outtakes. <laughs> so it's a three-act structure with a blooper reel at the end? Yeah, except the blooper reel comes in the middle of the movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Imagine a movie where they start playing bloopers in the middle of the movie. <laughs> they just throw up their hands like, I don't know. What do you want? It's cats. <laughs> I think Cats is just the blooper reel of humanity, because it is a mistake. Well, I still have not seen Cats, so maybe it will turn out to be a masterpiece. Uh, I have a feeling that, based off of first reactions and the tags on Google from the people that have seen it, it is not a masterpiece. Yeah, but the posters tell me that I will believe, I assume, in Cats. I just, to read some of the top-voted tags on Google for the 2019 film Cats, terrifying unsettling, cringeworthy, unique, and disturbing and gross. I mean, if you want to talk about tags for movies, I have a game that we're going to play today as part of our 2019 film retrospective. Do you want to play it now or do you want to do it at the end of the episode? Uh, Let's do it at the end of the episode because this movie is very weird and I'm excited to discuss it. All right, then let's get started. 
All right, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast dedicated to investigating the most pressing, urgent issues of our day, namely, what is in the heart of a horse. Also, does Hollywood (laughs) romance actually make any sense? And are these people, or in this movie's cases, horses, actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-horse flirtation. We will (laughs) dig in and see what is there. And this week, we're covering the third traditionally animated film released by DreamWorks Animation, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. The story of a horse named Spirit in a nebulous period of the 19th century West. It must have been at least during the building of the Transatlantic Railroad. So the Transcontinental Railroad was built in... Transcontinental. (laughs) Transatlantic Railroad Transatlantic Railway. It's like the channel. (laughs) Just goes under the entire Atlantic. It's a secret. You have to be in to get on. It's a secret with an A. And... I just got that. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, so the Transcontinental Railroad suggests that it's set in the 1860s. Which, like, kind of makes sense, except I'm confused about stuff like the idea that Spirit has never seen fire before. Because there are naturally occurring wildfires in the American West, and, like, Native Americans exist, and they used fire. Yeah, he must exist in a very small radius where there has never been a lightning strike, and he has never come across a single human, which I find hard to believe. Right. So Spirit is specifically a Kiger Mustang, which is a type of horse found in southeastern Oregon. So that would be butting up against like Idaho, Nevada, that part of the country. The imagery is kind of pulled from all over the West, from Yellowstone to Yosemite to the mountains of Colorado. So it's very hard to place this in time and place. Talking about time, actually, the Colonel, one of the few human characters, this one played by James Cromwell, was originally named Custer in the script. It was to be drawing very specifically on that part of the history of the West, and then they changed it to make it less specific, in part as they took more and more text out of the movie. So was this originally supposed to be a more dialogue-heavy film? It was. So, like we said, Spirit is the story of this horse, and one of the things they decided to do was to have the horse characters never speak. They're entirely silent. They don't even have voice actors doing the sounds because they thought humans, like, whinnying sounded weird. So they just recorded horse sounds and edited them in where they wanted them. But to make the movie, they hired this screenwriter named John Fusco, who had written a bunch of westerns. Like, uh, he wrote Young Guns, Thunderheart. He wrote Hidalgo after this. And they said, hey, tell us a western from the perspective of a horse. And so Fusco wrote it as a novel and then adapted the novel into a screenplay. And early on, the horses talked, and he also said there was actually a version where horses talked and humans didn't. And it was a little bit less clean cut, like all Americans bad, all Native Americans good. But like you've got Custer as the colonel, and they just kept pairing it out in part because the directors felt that once an animated horse talks, people think it's a comedy. I can see where they're coming from. A lot of this movie, I can see where they're coming from. I just think it's weird it's an interesting idea to investigate like what happens if you try and tell an animated story in a completely different way but at the same time honestly the choice of brian adams to provide the weird jukebox like 80s new wave copying tarzan phil collins soundtrack takes you completely out of it 
I'd be curious what this film would be like with a more Western-inspired soundtrack to match, like, the sweeping scenery and all that stuff that they have in it. That's an interesting idea because I do like the Hans Zimmer score for this movie. I think it's pretty solid. Yeah, the score is definitely solid. I will say this is the first DreamWorks movie that has grown in my estimation because I absolutely hated this movie when I watched it as a kid. Would you say you like it now? No. No. (laughs) No, it's pretty boring. It's boring. And that's what I didn't like about it as a kid. But at least now I can kind of appreciate what the film is trying to do more. Something as a kid that I refuse to engage with. It's interesting to think about where this fits into animation in the particular window when it comes out. Because, of course, the head of DreamWorks Animation at the time was Jeffrey Katzenberg, who had overseen Disney animation during the Renaissance period of the late 80s and 90s. He left right after the release of The Lion King. And... For starters, I think the first section of this movie has a lot of visual similarity to Lion King, and I was seeing a lot there. But also the ways in which this does and does not map onto the kinds of movies that were being made while Katzenberg was at Disney, where you have sort of this musical quality going on with the Brian Adams songs, but it's also very much saying this is not a comedy, this is a more serious take on the story of the West. Yeah, it's definitely not a comedy because it's very boring. (laughs) But it sometimes tries to be, and that's what's weird about the movie, is that we have these anthropomorphic horses that are flirting with each other and raising their eyebrows. One of the things they did to allow the horses to be more expressive was move their eyes more towards the front of their head. Yeah, I know. So you could see both at the same time. They also give the horses eyebrows. And so you have these horses that are clearly supposed to, like, be funny sometimes, but it's not entirely sure how funny. I'd be curious to see if they actually tried to make the horses even less human, what it would be like. Yeah, I don't know. It is worth noting Brian Adams at one point was considered for the voice of Spirit, and he did the voiceover text in the Canadian trailer for the movie. I get like, honestly, that would justify his presence at least a bit more. Right. Instead, they hire Matt Damon. This is the year after Ocean's Eleven. It's the same year as The Bourne Identity. So, like, he's this big, up-and-coming, exciting actor. It's, yeah, the voiceover is interesting because he's trying, and it's weird that there's a voiceover from the horse. Yeah, and it's also weird because it's, like, pretty flat. Like, I don't feel like I'm getting a lot of emotion out of that narration. It feels like somebody, many, many, many years later, just telling this story without a lot of investment in it. Right, it's definitely supposed to almost have a flashback quality to it, but it would almost be like they should show old spirit, like, regaling the story to young cults Like future Tom Hanks at at the beginning of Cloud Atlas. Right, or F. Murray Abraham in the beginning of Grand Budapest Hotel. So what we're saying is we want this movie to be either Grand Budapest Hotel or Cloud Atlas, but with horses. Exactly. I mean, basically... I would watch both of those movies. This movie, you could easily justify having a depressing look at the future and then being regaled with the history of what the Wild West used to be. Yeah. Because that's what they want to do. Right. That's what the goal is here. I think that ultimately the movie suffers because of the way that it uncomplicates the West. Where it certainly is a movie that's like, a lot of what the army did was not good, but it doesn't really allow for nuance with any of its characters, in part because so few of them speak, so it becomes more difficult to do that. But it also then keeps falling into this very simple structure where basically the same thing happens over and over again. It's like, Spirit is running around, he gets captured, he has to escape, then he's running around, then he gets captured, he has to escape. How many times, Mark, does Spirit get captured in this movie? Depends on if you count. At the end when Little Creek gets to ride him, but I don't think that's capture that's like partnership. Right, that doesn't count. I counted six. Really? 
Now, to be fair, I did count when he's a child and he gets his tongue caught in an icicle. <laughs> I guess that is a foreshadowing of the little horse getting caught and then using his wits to escape. He also gets lassoed by the riders whose camp he enters, and they bring him to the fort. Then when he escapes from the fort, he gets captured by the Lakota. Then he gets captured by the army again at the waterfall fight. Right. Then he escapes from the army when they're hauling the locomotive. He is briefly chained again while escaping from the army. And then when he's running away, his chain catches on the log, which I am also counting. (laughs) All right. So it's more like four. Fine. But that's still... Way this movie's too many. under 90 minutes. This movie is under 90 minutes and somehow tells the same story four times. Or six. Or I, mm, four times. It's so repetitive and boring. Yes, but it there's, is. That's a trap that they put themselves in because there's not much more you can do. This movie should have been a 15-minute short. Yeah, this would have been a, an interesting short. I do think that the animation on the horses does fall into, Uncanny Valley is the wrong word, but this weird medium space where I think that they are too anthropomorphic to not be speaking. Right. They look too traditional speaking animation that it's weird that they're not. I think it's notable a lot of these animators also worked on Shrek 2, which came out a year or two later, and reused a lot of horse movements that were developed for Donkey. I can see that. There's definitely that inspiration. I also find it interesting, this movie is very proud of its animation. Like, it's clearly, at least half of it is just, look how pretty we can draw the West. I was disappointed with how much CG was used in the movie. I thought it was a little overboard. Yeah, and I think it would have been prettier if... Like, if they had gone all hand-drawn, I think it could have been a prettier movie. Yeah, I think where, like, in The Prince of Egypt, there's a ton of CG, but it's used mostly for, like, really cool effects shots. Right. Here, it's just, like, any time you have any amount of motion, it's at work. And I know that there are computer programs that help with streamlining hand-drawn animation, but I feel like they've gone too far in that direction in this movie, and something is kind of lost. Yeah. This came out the same year as Lilo and Stitch, I think. Which it did, yeah. is a much prettier movie without it that being... That uses a lot of CG. That uses a lot of CG. Like, Lilo and Stitch's depiction of the ocean scenes at the beginning is just so well done. And so, one thing I did, like, right at the beginning... I've been playing Red Dead Redemption 2 recently. It was like, this movie came out 17 years ago, and now in 2019, technology has advanced so much that the video games are so much prettier than full animated movies. Which is not to say that there is not value in movies animated using earlier technology. No, definitely not. I just think that it's kind of, it shows how much we've progressed in oh, 17 absolutely. years that I think it's really interesting. Like, it's not... Sp- Spirit's fault. It's just cool to think about how much we've moved on. So let's actually talk about some of the other movies that are out in this year. This is the second year of the Best Animated Feature Oscar. DreamWorks won it the year before with Shrek in an upset against Monsters, Inc. This year, Spirit was nominated, along with Ice Age, Lilo and Stitch, and Treasure Planet, and all of them lost to Spirited Away. Thank God. A movie that is so much better than all of those other nominees. Spirited Away should have won Best Picture that year, honestly. That movie is perfect. What did win Best Picture in 2002? Spirited Away. No, like Best Picture. Oh, Best Picture. Um, A Beautiful Mind. Well, that's for 2001 movies. Dang it. Blue Mind was released in 2001. I always forget to Google the wrong year. Best Picture 2003. Oh, Chicago. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I love Chicago. Spirited Away. 
probably should have won Best Picture over Chicago. It's a better movie, but, you know, Chicago had that uh, whole Miramax campaign engine behind it. Yeah, also, the Oscars would never award a Japanese animated film Best Picture. Also that. That's just, that would never happen. Um, (laughs) Should we start talking about whatever romance is in this movie? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a film into five points as a way to guide our conversation, (laughs) less so than strictly following five points. We're not great at that, because looking at Will's description of the points, the first point does not include the other horse at all. Um, you know what? I kind of had to strain. I had another point before that that didn't even make the list. Yeah, so that's what I mean. It is a, it's a guide, not a strict rule. So, this movie is about a horse that doesn't talk. Um, his name is Spirit. Like his father before him, he is the leader of the Cimarron herd. What does that mean? It's something he tells us once in the narration, and we're like, wait a minute, that's a lot to unpack, and you're blowing past it. Where is your dad? What does it involve to lead the Cimarron herd? What is this governmental structure? Why is the youngest horse in the herd in charge? Besides it being a hereditary monarchy, I guess. Right, like, what is this movie? I also thought it was interesting. I watched the movie on Hulu. It started with the Universal logo. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when this movie was made, DreamWorks was an independent studio, but Comcast, NBC, Universal now owns DreamWorks Animation, and so I thought it was interesting that on this release, it is branded as a Universal movie. Yeah. Anyway. I also watched it on Hulu, and I did not pay attention to that. <laughs> so, we've got Spirit. He's hanging out with his horse mom, who I think... Look, I think the movie is trying to make all the female horses look attractive. This movie does try and make the horses sexy. All of the horses. It wants to be sexy horses, and it's weird. (laughs) It's weird. They are trying to be so flirtatious and sexual, but be horses. Like, you either talk and are a flirty horse, or you're a horse. This weird in-between area is so disconcerting. What's the weirdest is the love interest horse, Rain, is a paint horse. So she has these different patterns of colors. And the way they make it look is they basically use the different colors to make it look like she has like Angelina Jolie and Maleficent level cheekbones. Yeah, it is so bizarre. I didn't think about that. But now that you say that, I realize that is one of the things that weirded me out about Rain. And like Spirit's mom has like her blonde hair falling in her eyes that she's like flipping around. Yeah. It's so weird. It's very strange. Why does Rain have cheekbones? I don't know. Shout out to Rain, though. She's the first animated horse to receive an honorary registration certificate from the American Paint Horse Association. What does that mean? So, like, people who are really into paint horses sent her a certificate saying she was a member of their group. That's bizarre. Yes. Anyway, (laughs) so we got Spirit. He's hanging out with his hot mom. Hold on, I'm sending you an image I just found on, um, well, I was looking at pictures I don't know, want to know what happened rain. when you googled sexy horse. <laughs> I did not google sexy horse. I googled stallion, spirit of the Cimarron, and this came up. And it really captures exactly what is wrong with this film in one screen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a still of the movie with rain walking around a spirit. And Spirit raising its eyebrow at her. And the caption is nickering seductively. It really encapsulates everything wrong with this movie in one still. That's this movie. So Spirit's hanging out with his hot mom, hanging out in the West, like his father before him. He's the leader of the Cimarron herd. And one day he sees fire, which he has somehow never seen before. And so he decides to go and check it out. And this takes us to point number one, the first time Spirit ever meets a human. (laughs) Yeah, he is surprised by the idea of fire 
has never seen a human, apparently, and is exhibiting a weird lack of fear in his investigation. There are naturally occurring fires in the West. I also feel like a horse would be, like, more cautious engaging with a strange animal than this. Especially after the other horses are clearly telling him to run. Right, the, like, captive horses. Yeah, which, honestly, these horses probably are bred, which means they know no other life besides being, like... A, ho- a horse because they have a yearning to be free yeah even mustangs are originally domesticated horses that have gone feral right there are no naturally occurring horses in north america yeah i don't even know if there are any naturally occurring truly wild horses left but Stirrit is wandering around his camp he tries alcohol and doesn't like it and he's like sniffing his way around the camp and suddenly kisses a human And that's kind of this romantic awakening for Spirit, who's been a young guy. He's been hanging around his hot mom all this time, but he's never engaged in romance with anybody until this time that he kisses a human. And then he's running away, and he bites another horse in the butt to unseat its rider, just like Alex licked Marty's butt in Madagascar. Our only romance that we could find in that movie. Yes. I'm not really clear on who these campers, riders, whatever are, because they're not soldiers, they're not in uniform, but they just surrender spirit to the army. It's not even clear that they got paid for him. I assume that they were just army men who were out scouting or something out of uniform. I guess. I don't know. I also didn't put that much thought into watching this movie because it required absolutely none. But then how would you know about Brian Adams' songs and the way they reflected what was happening in the movie? I just assumed that they barely related and that Brian Adams had put little effort into capturing the spirit of the film. Actually, this movie premiered at Cannes out of competition. DreamWorks has this like weirdly long history with Cannes, both Shrek and Shrek 2 screened in competition there. And of and course, course B-Movie B movie premiered there with Jerry Seinfeld doing the zip line. This one premiered out of competition, but they had a live performance of the Hans Zimmer score with it, and they also had Brian Adams and his band perform the songs live. Apparently, one of the songs from this movie hit, like, number one in Europe. It was very popular in Europe, the music. Yeah, this song, like, got some noise. It was probably Here I Am. Yeah, I think it was that one. Which was also Golden Globe nominated for Best Original Song. The Golden Globes are a sham. I've They're just very caring. They were yesterday. What did you think? Oh, um, mm, they happened. I didn't care for Ricky Gervais as the host, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, that almost goes without saying. So that's all I can say. Wait, I want to read you these other original song nominations at the Globes that year. Okay. So it's Here I Am by Brian Adams from Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. Lose Yourself by Eminem from 8 Mile. Die Another Day by Madonna from Die Another Day. Father and Daughter by Paul Simon from the Wild Thornberries movie. And The Hands That Built America by Bono and the Edge from Gangs of New York. What a weird list of songs. Yeah. That is bizarre. And the Gangs of New York song won the globe. What won the Oscar? That is a great question. Lose Yourself. Okay. So we should be saying Academy Award winner Eminem. That's true. We should. So anyway, Spirit's captured by the army. He hangs out there for a while. While he is captured there, he also meets this captured Native American. Matt Damon tells us he was called Little Creek, which I guess means spirit can understand spoken English. Yeah, I don't really understand that because apparently he does understand people, like the way they talk. It's very strange. 
It's very strange. Spirit then becomes the Abraham Lincoln of horses when he frees all the brown horses from the fort. <laughs> Spirit's the white horse. Every horse that he frees is a horse of color. I just think that needs to be acknowledged. <laughs> I did not put that together, but I believe you. Later, Spirit becomes the Moses of horses when he leads all of the prisoners out of the railroad prison. Yeah. Spirit is clearly just supposed to be a liberator figure, and it's odd that they made him the lightest color horse. It's weird. Yeah. So he escapes the fort, and then he gets captured by Little Creek's Lakota friends because he was distracted by the sexy horse, Rain. And that's point number two. <laughs> yeah, and she is very fond of Little Creek. Yeah, she's a collaborator. Yeah, she is a collaborator. It's supposed to be a message of humans and animals can live in harmony as long as you respect each other and treat each other as equals. But actually, Rain is a collaborator and has been brainwashed into accepting her oppression. Right, and not only that, but helping to act to humiliate and oppress other horses. Yeah, she is trying to get him to accept domination by the outside forces. So this takes us to point number three, which is their flirtationship. <laughs> Where there's some nickering seductively. Exactly. So Spirit is in captivity, refusing to be ridden by Little Creek, just as he refused to be ridden by the colonel. And Rain neighs at him to kind of mock him, but also flirt with him. At one point, we get one word of narration from Matt Damon when he just says, mares, really derisively. Oh my God. They get tied together so that Rain can teach Spirit how to be nice. They're also tied badly. You can't just tie a rope around a horse's neck and, like, have them be pulling stuff around because that'll throttle the horse. You need to have support under its chest. Yeah, I guess the idea is that they trust each other enough that they won't strangle each other by running in two different ways. So that's exactly what Spirit tries to do, and he has to go back to Rain, and then Rain just starts staring at him seductively and, of course, nickering seductively as she walks around in circles and basically, she was seducing him so she could fool him into being tripped like a fool. She's a honeypot. Exactly. I was truly shocked when the movie didn't end with Rain giving birth to the next leader of the Cimarron herd. Yeah, exactly. We have a falling in love montage where they're swimming. They have an apple tree scene that is almost Lady and the Tramp. Yeah, they split an apple because she can't reach it, but then he gets it for her. Catches it in his mouth and feeds it to her that way. Yeah, but he's nice to a baby, as in he doesn't kill a human baby. And then he's, That takes us to point know, number four. Bonding. And then this brings us to point four. <laughs> this is where he gets the name Spirit, because Little Creek's like, you can't be broken. Be free. And Spirit tries to convince Rain to go with him, but she's like, no, I have a life here. And it's because Spirit keeps trying to get Rain to go with him, that he is around when the army shows up to kill all the Native Americans, and in the battle, the two of them are separated. At least this movie is very clearly against the genocide of Native Americans that occurred yes. in the West, even if it is unnuanced in his portrayal of the noble savage stereotype. This was also part of the thing that made it harder for me to figure out when it was set, because the idea of like a pretty much unoccupied West, where like Spirit has never seen a human, made me think we were talking about like the 1820s or 30s, but... The army randomly attacking Native American settlements would have to be like 1860s, 70s. Yeah. And with the railroads, that would also imply the like 60s and 70s. 
Right. So I think that's mostly where it's set. Yeah. And Spirit has just lived in a very small, excluded area from the rest of the West. How long do you think this movie takes place across? Couple weeks. Because he's starved and given no water at the camp. Like oh, that's the army true. camp, which means it can't have been more than a few days or else he would be dead. That's the thing. It's impossible to get exactly, like, is this a couple of days? Is it a couple of weeks? How long has the Cimarron herd been leaderless? I think it's no more than, like, a week or two, honestly. Which makes this quite the whirlwind romance. Yeah, exactly. Unless the, like, montage of them falling in love is supposed to be longer, I would say that this movie is no more than a couple weeks long. So, while they are separated, Matt Damon, in his spirit monologue, tells us that he was praying rain would be okay. And this is what I want to know. To whom is spirit praying? Is there a horse god? Yeah, I assume it's the stallion that mounts the world. Oh, of course. I was wondering if this fit into our DreamWorks thing where we had explicitly Catholic (laughs) and Jewish sharks. It's also There's also a horse Jesus, I think as well as Beezus from B-Movie. I think he's praying to Beezus. Also, I think we need to address that Rain is shot and then goes over a waterfall and somehow still survives. And somehow is fine. Yeah. I know Little Creek, like, tries to heal her, but it's still just, this horse should not be alive. Yeah. So Little Creek and Spirit are then on the run from the army. They're running around for a while. They eventually escape the army by jumping over a canyon. And the colonel respects them for it so much that he lets them go free. He's like, good for you. He's like, wow, what a jump. And he nods at the horse and the horse nods back. And he tells the soldiers not to shoot. He's like, that horse has got ups. He's finally accepting that the West can't be tamed. Which is not at all what happened. No, not at all. So Little Creek then takes Spirit to his burned out camp to reunite with Rain and whistles, Rain comes back, and the two of them return to the Cimarron herd. Where he takes over, and I assume his son will become leader of the Cimarron herd next. Well, in the DreamWorks animated series Spirit Riding Free, Spirit's son, who is also named Spirit, falls in love with another horse and has adventures. Is that a Netflix show? It is. Those are so weird. Who is watching those? Like, are kids actually watching them? DreamWorks movie has been adapted into a TV show. Yeah, that's what and I find this one interesting. was adapted like 10 years later. Weird. I wonder if they actually are very popular with parents and kids. I could see that. We are of the exact wrong age range to know what these kids are watching these days. I genuinely have no clue except what my coworkers mentioned. It's like, tell me about Paw Patrol, tell me about Dynatrux. Yeah, I think those are the two big ones. Paw Patrol seems to be a cult. <laughs> Paw Patrol is about dog cops. Yeah, very strange. Anyway. So, after watching all of this unfold, do you find the romance of Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron believable? I mean, based off the time frame that we established, I guess not really. But I don't know. How long do horses normally take to fall in love? I don't think horses are monogamous. Uh, we haven't been told that Spirit is. That's true. But I have no idea. This movie is very hard to judge. because it's, it's so weird. They are horses, so I don't know anything about the horse romantic slash mating process. And let's be clear, Rain is clearly a sexy horse yeah rain can clearly get it so i get why spirit's on board okay talking about animal love in this movie do you think that that buffalo wanted to have sex with spirit's hot mom i mean i think everyone wants to have sex with spirit's hot mom (laughs) she's such a hot horse kid spirit is in a river and there's noise and all the other horses are freaking out and this giant buffalo herd stops right in front of him like every buffalo stops when they could have just run around him 
They come to a stop. Spirit and the lead buffalo look at each other. And then the lead buffalo looks at Spirit's mom and raises its eyebrow. Yeah, he essentially winks at Spirit's hot mom. It's like, you up? It's very strange. This movie is very strange. So where would you rate the romance of Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron on our 10-point scale, where 0 is you believe none of it, and 10 is you believe all of it? I mean, they're both two sexy horses, so I'm gonna honestly say fairly high. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. They go through an adventure together. They're both of the age and nickering seductively at each other. Yeah, but she's a collaborator. She's a collaborator, but I don't know, like a a 5 or a 6? I'm gonna go 7. Okay. I have no idea. So weird. Do you think Spirit and Rain will stay together? I mean, probably. What else are they going to do? What else is going to happen? Maybe not. One of them might get captured again. They'll probably die. Or six more times. Get hit by a train. If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? I mean, it's either Little Creek or the Colonel as the only two developed humans. And so you could I'm be the blacksmith. Uh, I'm going to go with Little Creek. It's got to be Little Creek. That's the only option. All right. Any thoughts on Spirit before we move on into the other half of our episode? No, I, I'm good. I'm done. Okay. So 2019, now over. So I think it's time we look back at the year in film to talk about some of our favorite movies. This year, having moved to another country, I am a little more behind on my movie watching than usual, but I feel like I have a pretty solid list. Okay. And of course, the Golden Globes, as we said, were last night, but Oscar voting is currently underway. There's still a couple of days to nominate movies. So all the Academy voters who listen to our show, like keep some of these things in mind. Yeah. So Mark, I have a top 10. I ranked them one through 10. I'm guessing you did not do that again. No, I did alphabetical. I don't like ranking. That's fair. Do you want to go back and forth though? Sure. So my first one because of the alphabet is Brad Pitt starring in Ad Astra. Ooh, yes. This is a good one. This was in my like three-way deciding whether it should be my 10th slot. Yeah, that movie was very good. I liked the little touches it had throughout it, like when he's on the flight to the moon and the stewardess offers him a pillow and blanket and it's $120 to show how inflation changes. Like, I feel like it's a good way of placing it in the future that I've never seen in a movie before. Yeah, this is such an interesting movie to put in conversation with something like 2001 which also has a commercial space flight. And in that one, you get the sense that the character has done it a lot before, but that it's still pretty cool. Whereas this makes space flight as mundane as getting on an airplane. Like he gets off on the moon and there's a Subway sandwich shop right there. Yeah, and there's little kids running around. And it's clear that it happened in his lifetime, or at least his dad's lifetime. But it's definitely extremely commercialized. I, all of the messages of like, loneliness and how even loners need connections to people i really enjoyed it's also really cool how his loneliness is the thing that makes him good at his job like brad pitt is the best astronaut because his heart rate never goes above a certain level so he can stay calm and make rational decisions but that has also made it really difficult for him to maintain strong relationships in his life right you get the flashbacks to when he was dating Liv tyler who has like maybe 10 words in the movie but if there's a person you need to cast to look sad in a failing relationship you can't go wrong with Liv tyler she just has the perfect face for it i love this movie just as one that says like in the face of oblivion the thing we need are quiet intimate moments Yeah, and human connection is important, more so than trying to connect with some outside force. You've also got to shout out the Ruth Nega sequence on Mars. 
which is just really cool. The idea of these people who have grown up on a Martian colony that has sort of been abandoned. And what does that look like for them and their relationship to the rest of humanity? And how she's essentially forced to be in the army because of where she was born. That's a really cool movie. Yeah. All right. What is your, do you want to go down or do you want to go up? I'm going to go down from 10. And actually Ad Astra was, like I said, I was having a hard time deciding on my 10th slot. Ad Astra was one of them. So I'm going to toss that aside for the sake of talking about more movies. And I want to talk about Hustlers. That is on my list as well. Unsurprisingly. That Such movie a good was, movie. <laughs> felt very directed towards me. In a way, like Ad Astra, this is also a movie about people who sometimes isolate themselves finding spaces to come together. Yeah, it's about forging connections and creating a community through difficulties exactly when we are feeling at our lowest we just need to come into one another's furs yes and of course the movie introduces jennifer lopez's character by having her stripped to fiona apple and few things in life have made me happier but really the great moment for her is when constance Wu goes up onto the roof and she is just there resplendent in that fur coat I think one of the best moments in that movie is when you see J-Lo from the perspective of the journalist, like when the journalist talks to Ramona versus when you get it in flashback and just how much Ramona is a normal person in that scene. Yes. Whereas she is this larger than life figure for Constance Wu's character. Exactly. I think that was one of my favorite touches. That's what kind of really brought the movie together for me. Yeah, I think this is one of the better movies dealing with the legacy of the financial crisis, showing this different angle on how people are affected by economic catastrophe at different levels of social class. Right, and how it affects the people that didn't cause it so much more than the people that did. Yeah. All right, so going alphabetically, my next film that I am bringing to the table is Booksmart, directed by Olivia Wilde. Great, that just barely didn't make my list. That was one of the most fun times I've ever had in the movie theater. It is one of the funniest movies that came out this year. Yeah. I love the interplay between Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein. The way that they shout Malala at each other as this invocation of, you are my friend and you must support me. Yeah, I feel like the pressure of getting into a good school and the way it handles that in different ways, whereas it shows that, you know, you don't have to ruin your life and not have fun to succeed. And I think that's a good lesson to learn. Yeah, and it it is such a fun twist on the high school party movie, which is something we've talked about a couple of times on the show, by just making it about getting to the party more than anything else. And then Billy Lord is giving a transcendent performance. Completely fantastic. I haven't finalized my personal Oscar spreadsheet, which I know you know about where I fill in nominations in every category, but Billy Lord still may very well wind up on mine. The joke of someone just showing up in places somehow always gets me. Just like when someone is in a place that they should not be, logically, I always laugh. But I think the movie also like has a lot of heart for this relationship. It's not just an outrageous comedy, which it is, but this relationship also feels very real and very fun. Yeah. My number nine is in a very different space. Uh, It is the film The Irishman. I have not watched that yet. It's so good. I have only seen it once. I got to see it in theaters, but I cannot wait to watch it again. It is this, I mean, for starters, the thing everyone knows about The Irishman is that it's very long and that it uses de-aging technology on Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. And the thing about The Irishman, I think, is that the length is a big part of what makes it work. Because we have primarily our main character, Frank Sheeran, played by Robert De Niro, who is getting slowly dragged into this criminal underworld and taking it very seriously, sort of the stoic mid-century American man. But we see the toxic ways that that manifests, his tendencies towards violence, 
his willingness, a former soldier, to just follow orders and do some pretty atrocious things. But what happens is he then keeps living, and he's around for decades after his most sort of exciting and ignoble actions, and he has to live thinking for the rest of his life about the things that he has done. And so I think that length of the movie kind of mirrors the length of the life, where he lives beyond the most thrilling things that happen, and is still reckoning with their effect on his life. I think Joe Pesci is a revelation in this movie as just this quiet force of menace, and it is just a movie that I cannot get out of my head. It's truly impressive to think about Martin Scorsese making this when he doesn't have arms and just has fins, and anytime he gets stressed, he blows up. Yeah, but he has all that money from gambling. He does. I so mean, he can finance this with the help of Netflix. Exactly. And a nice Shark Tale joke. Someone tweeted a picture of the fact that at DreamWorks, they have a model of Martin Scorsese as the blowfish is one of the funniest things I have ever thought about. I think I would buy that. I would buy it too, honestly. It's just so ridiculous that they got him to play this character. Yeah. So what's your next one? All right. This is a movie that is definitely in my, like, tippy top of my favorite movies of all time, honestly. It's Lulu Wong's The Farewell. Oh, yes, of course. I have never cried at a movie more than this one because all it would take would be for Nai Nai to just cough. Like, it wouldn't even be a hacking cough or anything. She'd just, like, lean her head over and cough a little bit, and I would sob because I loved her so much. Like, Aquafina would look sad at the camera, and I'd start crying again. The amount of emotion squeezed into this movie, the feeling, the quality of the acting, where it takes very subtle, like, facial expressions to convey so much emotion. I think it's great. I think the depiction of what life is like in China for just people living their lives instead of investigating, like, you know, the politics or anything, just showing that there are people in China that are just, you know, living their life is very well done. It's so good. I love this movie. I think the thing about people living in China is an interesting aspect where we have this family that comes back together and we see the, like, tension is the wrong word, but the cultural barriers that exist when part of the family lives in the United States, part of the family lives in Japan, and they're coming together to make these hard decisions. And Aquafina in particular is bringing a very different perspective. And I think the movie does a nice job of exploring the impulses behind those different perspectives. The little touches that they include in this movie too, where they're eating dinner, and I noticed that Aquafina's character, Billy, who grew up, or Billy, who grew up in the States, holds her chopsticks so much lower than everyone else because she's not used to using chopsticks for every meal like the rest of her family. And the other thing that the movie does well is just the comedy in such a depressing situation. Some of the jokes, like when her mom says, in China we have a saying, when you get cancer, you die. She delivers it so well that I burst out laughing, even though it's such a terrible situation yeah and the movie finds these sort of moments of grace throughout really hard decisions um my number eight uh coming in it's gonna be a blast of a movie ryan johnson's knives out unsurprisingly that's on my list yeah it's just an old-fashioned whodunit but putting some really exciting new twists on it an all-star cast knocking it out of the park Ana de Armas does a great job of leading it as uh, this domestic worker, Marta, who lived in the house where the murder took place. And you just get a ton of fun performances by the family of this murdered patriarch, Christopher Plummer. One of my favorites was Don Johnson. Oh my God, he's so good. As one of Christopher Plummer's sons-in-law, who is just terrific in the way that he is both friendly and terrible. And you have to 
shout out Tony Collette. Why has she not given more comedic performances? Every beat is perfect. She She's nails basically it. Gwyneth Paltrow as a goop magnate. Exactly. And just at one point, the way she says goodnight to Christopher Plummer's character, she just goes like, goodnight, love you. I died laughing at her performance every time she was on screen. This isn't really a spoiler to say. One of my favorite devices the movie creates is that Marta, played by Ana de Armas, every time she lies, she vomits. Which is, on the one hand, really funny, but also becomes a really cool device for the movie that they can use in this ongoing investigation by Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc. Also, I had no idea going into it that it would be a allegory for American immigration and And racism. class and all and of this. class, yeah. It's just a ton of fun. It's fun to see Ryan Johnson take these big populist type movies, but be able to do them with artistry and with intention and really make you think about it. Ah, so good. I saw it twice within two weeks and both times I went, I was like, I could feel my heart re- rising even the second time i watched it when i knew what was coming more than any of the other movies on my list i think that's the one that i will go back to again and again and again it's so fun all right so next on my list we have um who directed it i think it's alex ross perry's her smell yes that's number five on my list elizabeth moss is just doing such good work it's so fun. So this is a story of Elizabeth Moss as Becky something, a sort of 90s punk rocker. And the movie's told in five acts, charting her demise, really, her downfall, in large part due to her own unpleasantness as well as her substance abuse. And her unwillingness to compromise on her punk lifestyle. Like her commitment to punk drives her away even from the other members of the band who... And from her family and really all of the things that could have kept her grounded. Exactly. So her ability to just like stay connected to humans comes from her unwillingness to compromise on her like ideology. Whereas the other members of the band are punks, but they realize that, you know... You have to forge bonds with people. Wow, it's almost like movies are a great way to investigate how humans relate to each other. Yeah. There were a lot of movies this year that I found very unpleasant but liked a lot. High Life is another one that Claire Denis filmed with Robert Pattinson in space. But I think her smell is just operating on this incredible level. And, you know, the songs are good too. Yeah, it's also just good music. All right. My next one. You're next. Number seven, uh, much like my number nine, this one's also on Netflix. This is Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, in which Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson get divorced. I know very little about this film, except that Adam Driver seems too large, just like he is always in other movies. Well, especially in The Last Jedi, when you see his high-waisted pants and shirtless chest. Oh, and he's all oiled up. What a That wide scene. body. I'm just like, I saw that. You know, we watched Star Wars last night, the new one, and I was disappointed that he was wearing a shirt the whole time, honestly. So in Marriage Story, it is really simple to describe. It's these two people getting divorced. But I think it is a movie that approaches this with a lot of compassion. I think it's a movie where you get the sense of where each character is coming from. You get the sense of where each of them, particularly Adam Driver, have failed in this relationship. But there is compassion available for both of them. And... There are a lot of moments of fun mixed with this real despair. One of my favorite moments is when they're going to the courthouse to finalize their settlement. And 
Scarlett Johansson's lawyer, played by Laura Dern, is there ready to go. And then Ray Liotta, who's another divorce lawyer, shows up. And you laugh out loud, but you also just feel your heart sink. Like, oh man, this movie is far from over. It also does great things for me in that as a lover of Stephen Sondheim, at different points in the movie, both characters sing songs from Company, which might be my favorite musical. Scarlett Johansson sings You Could Drive a Person Crazy with her mom and her sister, who, Mark, you would love. That sounds really fun. (laughs) It is a fantastic performance by Merritt Weaver. There's this amazing scene where Scarlett Johansson needs Merritt Weaver to serve Adam Driver with the formal divorce papers because ScarJo cannot legally hand the papers over herself. And Merritt Weaver is freaking out. She's like, I need to rehearse this. I didn't plan. What should I say when it happens? And is just getting herself really worked up. And it's just hilarious. All right. I have it downloaded. I downloaded it for my flight here. But then I saw Ad Astra and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood were on the flight. So I watched those instead. But I will get to it soon. Excellent. Yeah, I think you'll really dig it. All right. So my next two were Hustlers and Knives Out. So this brings me to Ari Aster's Midsummer. Oh, yes. That was another one that was playing around for that 10th slot for me. That movie was so good. And it was really so much less of a horror film than I expected. Much less than Hereditary. Yeah. And it was just such a good, slow, quiet film that was also terrifying. Florence Pugh does incredible work in that movie. I am so excited by what we're seeing out of her in that. Of course, in Little Women coming out. And next year, we're going to get to see her do the Marvel thing in Black Widow. I think she's somebody who's got some really cool stuff going on. I know. I love her. Her screaming and crying are legendary. Like, they are up there with all of the greats. And the whole supporting cast is fun where we've got Will Poulter. We've got... William Jackson Harper. We've got Jack Rayner from My Beloved Sing Street. Uh, It's so good. So yeah, if you want to see a very unsettling movie set pretty much entirely in daylight, check out Midsummer. Yeah, that's also really cool. The choice to make a bright horror film. Yeah, I really dug that. Uh, My number six, I believe, may be on your list as well. It's Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a movie I liked much more than I expected to. Me too. It was just, you know, when it came out and in that lead up to it, people were talking about like the Manson murder part of it, but that was so much less than I expected. And it was really just like a look at Hollywood changing in 1969. It also was an interesting companion piece to The Irishman, where both of these movies are about American masculinity in the middle of the 20th century. And The Irishman is looking at the ugly ways that that manifested. We have Frank Sheeran as this sturdy man of the house, and that leads him to perform great violence in his underworld career, but also in his neighborhood. In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we have Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, who portrays this masculinity on TV where he is in all these westerns, but in his life feels very adrift and lacks that sort of certainty and feels like he's not sure he fits in this world anymore. I love the amount of time he cries in that movie. Yeah, I think this is one of my favorite DiCaprio performances. I kind of wish we could give him the Oscar for this instead of for The Revenant, but I think a Leo that didn't have his Oscar might not have done this performance. It's a little too introspective in a way. Yeah, it's so good. And just Brad Pitt takes his shirt off to reinstall an antenna on a roof, and it truly felt like a gift. That man looks good. Always. All right, so this brings me to my next one. Uh, alphabetically, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was next. So this brings me to Toy Story 4. Good movie! A movie that was just so fun. It's definitely not the best Toy Story or best Pixar, but I always love a Toy Story story. This is one of the great ones where you can see you can see what makes Pixar the best in the business when it comes to computer animation. The level of craft involved in this is really spectacular. 
Also, just bringing back Bo Peep was something I didn't expect and brought me much more joy than I expected. Yeah, not that I ever want to see it, but I wonder what the John Lasseter version of this movie looks like. Because he did wind up with a story credit, and bizarrely, in some of the early press around the movie, he said that it was inspired by his relationship with his wife, which is very strange to think about. Lasseter, of course, was fired by Disney and Pixar because of allegations of sexual harassment. And so instead we have this movie that I think is a really lovely conclusion to the Toy Story franchise, where we're asking a lot of these questions that we asked in Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3 about what happens to toys when they are no longer needed. And Toy Story 3 says, well, they find purpose with a new kid. And this one kind of says they find a world and a life and a purpose all of their own. Yeah, it's more about finding your own self and learning how to accept that you deserve happiness for yourself as well. Yeah, where Woody is a character that has always been weighed down by the need to be there for the kid to do anything. He cannot not be there. And in this movie, he gets to choose to act for himself. And I also loved how much more complicated the villain in this one was. Gabby Gabby. Gabby Gabby was more so, I'd say, than like, Lotto and the prospector was i do love stinky pete though i love stinky pete but gabby gabby definitely provides a much more complicated villain like her backstory and stuff was a lot sadder and i thought that performance was really good too uh big fan yeah good movie uh my number five is her smell which we've already talked about elizabeth moss fantastic she is in two movies in my top five because she's that great Oh, I know what the next one she is in is, probably. Of course. It will be the one I am discussing next, because that's how the alphabet works. All right. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to my number four, though, which only was barely released in the United States this year, and that's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, directed by Celine Sciamma. It's a French movie about basically 18th century lesbians, but really, it's about this painter who is hired to paint a portrait of another woman so that the portrait can be sent off as like to a wealthy man to say do you want to marry this lady and over the course of painting this portrait the two women find a greater level of companionship with one another than they had found anywhere else uh i'm so excited to watch that honestly period lesbian sounds so good regardless of the quality i'm so glad that it is very good it is genuinely incredible i'm so disappointed that France did not submit this as its movie for the best international film for the Oscars. I have not seen Les Miserables, the movie they did submit, but I think this one is something that's really, really special. I can't wait to watch it. I will find a way. It will open in the United States in February. Yeah. So if you are interested in this, it's definitely something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, it's coming out in the UK in February as well. It touches also on one of my favorite things to bring up with my students, which is the history of our ability to listen to music. We kind of take music for granted. We choose to turn it on all the time. We walk into a store and we hear it and may not even realize we're hearing it. It's the background of a lot of our lives. But for most of human history, you only heard music when someone was choosing to play it. And that's something that's really powerful. One of the characters in this movie talked about loving going to mass, not because she's particularly religious, but because that's the one time she was able to hear music. And I think that's just such a weird thing to think about. Yeah, we definitely take music for granted. And it is so important. And I'm glad that we have it. And it's very nice 
to be able to listen to it whenever you want. And the evolution of going from people thinking like vinyl revolutionizing that idea of just having it in your house to now you can listen to any song anywhere, essentially, no matter the time is amazing. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. All right. So this is the last on my top 10. Um, It is Jordan Peele's Us. That's my number two. I love this movie. It was just the everything about it. Lupita Nyong'o. I've never seen a movie with more child performers giving amazing performances. Like every single young actor in this movie, especially like super young Lupita Nyong'o is just unbelievably good. I think about Lupita Nyong'o as this character Red walking around rooms and it freaks me out right now and it's 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, her performance as Red was terifying elizabeth moss as the like clueless rich wife it's so funny as her tether is so funny and so good this is a movie i loved thinking about like it wasn't until the next day that i was thinking about the house of mirrors from the opening sequence when it's the shaman's vision quest in the 1980s and then in the present day it's the same thing but it's been rebranded as like merlin's enchanted forest and this notion of america's uglier past some of the stuff we talked about with spirit and the way that rather than face it all the time we just kind of paper over it but the ugly stuff is still beneath it if you go through the wrong door like this is a movie that has so much going on and i feel like there were some people who complained about it because they focused on the wrong things they wanted to know exactly how everything functioned and that's not what this movie is about this is a movie about big ideas and really stunning visual filmmaking And how every idea can be basically talked about at once. And you can, like, there were people talking, is this about race? Is it about class? Like, all that. It's about all of them. It's about all of it. Like, it is more than one thing. This movie was just so good. And I feel like I haven't been scareder in the theater in a very long time at just standing. At score. Yeah. The score is definitely a big part of it. But just like, I mean... The opening scene when it's just a little girl walking through a carnival, which is supposed to be a happy place, but her face combined with the score makes it one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Yeah. This is the only studio film in my top five, and I really thought about putting it at number one because it's so exciting when a major filmmaker working at a major studio is able to put out a movie that is this daring and this exciting. And I do give a lot of credit obviously to Jordan Peele, but also to Universal for putting out a movie like this. Yeah, it's definitely, I'm always excited for what Jordan Peele's going to make next. All right. Um, so that's my number two. My number three, which we've skipped past, is, Mark, I cannot believe you haven't seen this because it is so entirely made for you. It's Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho. I can't wait. I. It's not coming out till the end of January. No, that's, it is just, it just came out in London before I came here. That is so upsetting because this movie is fantastic. I texted my family when I got out. I said, you have to see Parasite. It's one of the funniest movies of the year. And that is true. The first half of it is basically a heist comedy where they're not trying to steal anything. They're just trying to get jobs. It is a movie about social class. It is about who is on top and who is on bottom, literally manifested through geography and architecture. It is cutting. It is funny. And it is really, truly horrifying. I think one of the things this movie does so well is portray the way that capitalism pits people of the same social class against one another. And people can get so wrapped up in that competition that they don't pay attention to the larger forces that are putting them all there. Well, I think it's playing in Asheville, so I will be seeing it next week. You've got to see it. And these 
performances by everybody in the cast, particularly, I think, Song Kang-ho as the father of this family, it's just, just a ton of fun. There's a moment where he's trying to get a job where I burst out laughing and had a hard time stopping myself. I can't wait. All right. What's your number one? So, yes, uh, three was Parasite. My number two is Us. And my number one is a movie I talked about on this show back when we did our mid-year check-in. It is The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was a Sundance movie. It was released by A24 back in June. And it is the story of this guy, Jimmy Fales, living in Oakland and San Francisco and trying to return to the home that his family was gentrified out of, the home that his grandfather built. And Jimmy Fales is a real man. This is partially based on his friendship with the director of the film. And he does a terrific job as this very sad artist trying to find his place in the world. The performance in the movie that speaks even more to me is Jonathan Majors as his friend Montgomery, who works so hard to give voice to what he is seeing around him. It's a movie about community that has been lost, about trying to build something different. It's about asking questions about where we fit into the world in a world that sometimes doesn't look out for people the way that it should. It has this absolutely transcendent score by Emile Nosseri, which was my number one. He, that composer was my number one artist on Spotify last year because I listened to that score so much. This is just a really, really cool film that I keep going back to. It's one that I, I think is really special. I definitely need to see that one. I believe it is streaming on Canopy. I had forgotten about it. TBH <laughs> came out a long time ago. Yeah, and there are still some movies that I have not seen yet. I have not seen Uncut Gems. I have not seen Pain and Glory, A Hidden Life, all of which I think could potentially find their way in here. Um, I think this was a good year of film. Also, I don't really believe in bad years for film because a year always has some good movies. Yeah, I'm always struggling to narrow it down to 10, which is exciting to see. And it's also cool to look at these lists and see how they change as I watch more movies. Like, I had multiple movies that were not in English on my list this year, and that's not a thing that had ever happened. Yeah, I don't think I got to see any of the foreign films. It's very disappointing, honestly, living in other countries sometimes, where movies just aren't as much of the culture. I have learned how much movies define America, even with people that don't think they're as into movies. People here, I think, care about movies more so than other places. It's a big part of our monoculture. Yeah. All right. Before we say goodbye to the year 2019 in film, I have a game I want to play with you. All right. I am excited. I'm not going to do well based off of my performance in our last game. That game hasn't come out yet. Oh, never mind. Stay tuned for like a month from now. (laughs) Stay tuned for me to be bad at a game. So there were a lot of movies out in 2019. I saw a lot more than you did. I have not seen all of these movies. But what I'm going to do is for each month of the year, I'm going to give you the IMDb description of a movie. And I want you to tell me what that movie is. Okay. These are all major releases in 2019. The only place that I've changed the descriptions is if they said something that made it really, really obvious what the movie was. Okay. So January, this movie made $108 million. It is a comedic look at the relationship between a wealthy man with quadriplegia and an unemployed man with a criminal record who's hired to help him. Oh my god, I forgot what movie it's called. It stars Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. Is it called, like, The Upside or something? It is The Upside! Oh my god. That movie made $108 million. That's insane. And it was adapted from this, like, huge hit French movie from, like, 10 years ago. It was, like, the biggest hit in France, originally. I feel like no one was talking about that movie. I am surprised that it but made it, that it much But it was weird, because it made so much money. Yeah. yeah. All right, February. It's been five years since everything was awesome, and the citizens are facing a huge new threat. It's Lego Invaders movie. from outer space. <laughs> yeah, it's the Lego Movie 2, which made $105 million and does not exist. Wow, that's 
a lot of the top movies this year, I feel, did not make a lasting impact. Like, the Lego Movie 2 vanished. Yeah. It's not a bad movie. I didn't watch it, so I can't I can't say. I think it's pretty fun. I think they made too many Lego movies too quickly, and people lost interest. All right, what's next? All right, March. A young performer helps save a struggling circus. But when the circus plans a new venture, he and his friends discover dark secrets beneath its shiny veneer. Dumbo. Dumbo, $114 million. Which was a big disappointment, if I remember correctly. Yeah, not a terrible movie. Not terrible, not good. Yeah, I had recently watched every Tim Burton movie except for Dark Shadows, so Dumbo was a little bit more refreshing than it would have been otherwise. Compared to us, that movie represents basically the worst of child performances. (laughs) Yes, those are the worst child performances I saw this year. All right, April. A woman is transformed into her younger self at a point in her life when the pressures of adulthood become too much to bear. Little. Little, $40 million. A movie that got a executive producership for a 14-year-old girl. Yeah, the little girl who, she was on Blackish, and the movie was her idea, and she played the little kid. It's kind of a fun performance. The movie's not amazing, but it's fine. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's cool that a 14-year-old got a movie made. All right, the May one is the movie that... I had forgotten existed and that made me want to play this game. Okay. An animated musical in which free-spirited friends confront what it means to be different, struggle with a desire to be loved, and ultimately discover that who you truly are is what matters most. Animated musical from May about friendship. And it was a big release? It was a wide release, but it only made $20 million. Oh, so it's... Because this was when Avengers was blowing up the box office. Yeah. I have no idea. I absolutely... Like... Is it the first of the Yeti movies? It is not. The first of the Yeti movies was Smallfoot, which came out last year, in 2018. Where Zendaya is Michi. And LeBron James is Gwangi. Yeah. Um, I, can, can you give me another hint? Um, yeah, it is adapted from basically toys. Is it the Playmobil movie? No, that <laughs> it came out in December. That actually was my December oh, pick. It's Ugly Dolls. It is the Ugly Dolls movie. Oh my god, I forgot that happened. Yeah, Playmobil was my December pick. Well, that movie came out. Yeah, it made a million (laughs) dollars. It made a million dollars? One million (laughs) dollars. Oh my god, stop. Yeah, okay, June. These heroes have always protected the Earth from the scum of the universe. In this new adventure, they tackle their biggest threat to date, a mole in their organization. Men in Black International. That is right, that movie is garbage. It also uses the, like, Instagram, like, look at my happy life, all caps font, to be location cards. So, like, at the bottom of the screen, it'll be, like, Istanbul. And it that was just the little thing that enraged me in a movie that was mostly very dull. I had hopes, but I was very disappointed at the reviews. It's no good. All right, July. We're halfway through. A detective recruits his Uber driver into an unexpected night of adventure. Stuber. Stuber. What a weird year. I'm doing better than expected. Feeling good. A loving mom becomes compelled to reconnect with her creative passions after years of sacrificing herself for her family. Is this... It made $9 million. Okay. Its lead was nominated for a Golden Globe. Did you see it? I did not. I felt like I saw too much of it, though. Oh. Um, where'd you go, Bernadette? (laughs) That is right. Um, Kate Blanchett, Golden Globe nominated for that movie. That trailer is the worst trailer because it is so long. Yes. All right. September. A boy in New York is taken in by a wealthy Upper East Side family after his mother is killed in a bombing. The Goldfinch. Yes. That was one of the weird ones where the Goldfinch and Hustlers both premiered at TIFF on like the first day of the festival and then opened while the festival was still going on. 
And that worked out great for Hustlers because of all the buzz. And the Goldfinch, conversely, made $5 million. Yeah, that movie did not, that did not work out for the Goldfinch. No. All right, October, the dramatic story of the cutthroat race to determine whose electrical system would power the modern world. Oh, it's The Current War? Is that what it's called? Technically, it was released as The Current War Director's Cut. What? You don't know about this? So I know that war... there was, like, some troubles in the making of this film. The Current War was a TIFF movie in 2017, and it got kind of bad reviews there. And then it wound up not getting released because the company that was going to release it then went under about a month after TIFF because that company was the Weinstein Company. Oh. So the movie, like, floated around for a while, having already been poorly reviewed, and it eventually got picked up with a slightly different cut and released this year to make $6 million. Oof. Not great. November, an embattled detective is thrust into a citywide manhunt for a pair of cop killers after uncovering a massive and unexpected conspiracy. Well, did you know that there's 21 bridges into the island of Manhattan? What? How would you know that? And there's five tunnels. Also the rivers. <laughs> and also rivers. And then December, of course, was the Playmobil movie. Yes. That is hilarious that that made $1 million. That was as of when I made the list on December 18th. It made $12 million overseas. Okay. Well, it is a European brand. Yeah. So, you know, just to put that out there. Oh, Playmobil the movie. It's so sad. I did just Google the lowest grossing movie of all time. Do you know it? I do not. It's called Zizek's Road. It stars Catherine Heigl, Leo Grillo, and Tom Sizemore. And... I want you to guess how much money it made. Like $7. Like one person bought a ticket. 20 to 30 There we go. <laughs> it opened it. One cinema. All right. Well, I think that about does it for Spirit Stallion of the Simmering. <laughs> oh, my God. Answering this last question is going to be rough. Anyway, uh, next week, we are going back to musicals, and I can't wait. We are looking at the film version of Little Shop of Horrors. We're getting puppets back! Oh my god, I can't wait. More puppets! This movie rules. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron? I guess just do as much seductive nickering as possible. I was gonna say, get captured repeatedly, and eventually it might work. Don't get honey potted. I know it works out for them, but I feel like it has the potential for disaster. All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of them, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye. New world.